Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by Dr. David Perlmutter, who is here to discuss the fifth year revision of his incredibly successful Grain Brain that has been published in, I think, over 30 different languages. And I know it sold over a million copies, which is quite a landmark that very few books in natural medicine are able, able, ever able to achieve. So uh, congratulations and welcome and thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you and uh, great to see you again. I think the last time we were together would have been in, uh, I guess it was Austin, Texas, wasn't it? That's correct, at Paleo FX, my first time attending. It was a good, it was enjoyable. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Yeah, we actually spoke on a panel together. That's right. And, uh, you know, again, focusing on the importance of nutrition for health. What a concept. Yeah, imagine that. So has, has your book been actually published in, it was a 38 different languages now? It's uh, 34 different languages. Okay. And every, every couple of days I get another copy in a language that I cannot identify. And I hope that there's a little note on the inside indicating what the language is. Yesterday I got a copy of actually Brain Maker, uh, that was in Hungarian, so you again can assume why I wouldn't sure. have known that, but fortunately it was labeled, so uh, it's, it's very exciting. I mean, the message for the past five years with Grain Brain has been become uh, global, and rightfully it should be, because I think the messages that we talked about, about carbohydrates and health and carbohydrates in the brain, are really very important globally as well, as the rest of the world adopts our modern Western diet and is paying the price for that. So what has been the reception of your book uh, within the natural medicine community, but then the broader uh, conventional community, which you know, you're certainly are able to play a big role on because you haven't been blackballed and uh, are able to get on some of the major media. So what, what, how has your book been? Well, I, you know, it's been really a great ride. It's been a, 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 an incredible learning experience because, you know, uh, fortunately I've had pushback and have had to defend our positions and I've been able to defend our positions about why sugar is toxic to the brain, uh, why gluten, why there really is something called non-celiac gluten sensitivity. And, you know, these were our fundamental points uh, which were very much embraced in the natural community. And uh, was there pushback in mainstream medicine from these ideas? You bet there was. It wasn't huge, but it was there. And I'm glad that, that I was challenged because it gave me the opportunity to really substantiate uh, our positions and our statements uh, in Grain Brain by using literature that these doctors read, that these doctors respect. And now that we uh, are putting out this five-year anniversary, uh, it's really given me the opportunity to use the evolution of this science over the past five years that has been, you know, completely dialed in with supporting our message and really indicating that while even now, five years later, we don't have a treatment, for example, for Alzheimer's, it can be prevented based upon uh, getting the, this message out and implementing plans to lower our sugar exposure and you know, really make, being careful about what we eat and how much exercise we get and the quality of our sleep, for example. No question. So has uh, the, the new revision of your book, The Fifth Year Anniversary, is there uh, just, <clears throat> what's the biggest revision? Is there more supporting science or are there actually some new strategies that have weren't in the first edition? 
Uh, I, I think that, you know, the main issue here is that the science is now completely lined up behind us, that uh, mostly our dietary choices are having a huge influence on the decay of the human brain globally and are explaining this absolute epidemic of an untreatable disease by conventional medicine called Alzheimer's. Uh, you know, we're really uh, hammering away at this profound relationship between even mild elevations of blood sugar uh, and risk for dementia. And certainly uh, the ideas that we put forward about becoming type two diabetic and quadrupling your risk for Alzheimer's have been validated. The uh, data that we did not have that we have now uh, with reference to what's causing diabetes, I think is really very uh, intriguing and uh, is cause for us to take a step back and take a breath because what we're now looking at is the powerful data uh, that connects statin use uh, in both males and females uh, with development of um, diabetes. Uh, in males, it's about a 41% increased risk of diabetes in statin users. And from the Women's Collaborative Study uh, from 2017, a 71% increased risk of developing diabetes in women who are put on a statin medication. Uh, they become diabetic and their risk for Alzheimer's goes up dramatically as much as three or four fold. Uh, you know, I, do I wish I would have had that information five years ago? Well, it wasn't published, I didn't have it. But you know, that really, I, I think, is hugely important that we as physicians try to practice under the, the notion of above all do no harm, and we are making men and women diabetic and magnifying their risk for Alzheimer's and cardiovascular disease as well. I mean, women have a three to four times increased risk of coronary artery disease if they become diabetic. For men, it's a two to threefold increase, which is huge, both in men and women. So, uh, you know, that's, that's new information. And I think the dietary information, uh, especially with the United States dietary guidelines now lining up against the idea that fat is actually good for us and that the, the real relationship that's damaging to us is our relationship with sugar and carbs. That was our original message that was accepted by most, but certainly uh, experienced a bit of pushback from mainstream a medicine that wanted us to believe that we should, we should all be low fat and no fat. And we now know uh, with great confirmation that that is absolutely the wrong approach. Yes, indeed. So uh, I neglected to mention in your introduction, uh, because some people may not realize or remember that you're a neurologist, which is one of the reasons why you tend to focus on neurological diseases like Alzheimer's. But you also mentioned the um, the connection with diabetes and the grains, and it was interesting uh, that Jason Fung, and I'm, who I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, just published a case report in British Medical Journal, which actually made the front page of CNN, that showed that he was able, able to reverse type 2 diabetes. Many of the individuals were on that for 10, 20 years taking insulin and get them completely free and cured, essentially, just with these simple strategies of dietary manipulation. That's right, Dr. Sarah Hallberg at Verda Health published a report uh, last year uh, in a, a study of 100 uh, individuals with type 2 diabetes. And I had the opportunity to interview her and just by putting them on a ketogenic diet that maybe we will talk about, 
uh, reverse diabetes in many, but across the board, uh, was able to dramatically reduce their medications. Uh, one class of drugs that's commonly used in type 2 diabetics are called the sulfonylureas. And in her uh, case, uh, rather her study, she was able to get 100% of the people taking sulfonylureas off of that class of medication. So uh, who knew? Uh, well, we all suspected it, and many of us knew, I, so I use that sort of rhetorically. But diet is key, and uh, truthfully, uh, this notion of a ketogenic diet has also been implemented in individuals with early-stage cognitive decline and has been demonstrated to reverse their cognitive decline. Dr. Dale Bredesen certainly uses a higher-fat ketogenic diet uh, in his protocol for Alzheimer's disease. And I think it really gets to the notion of <clears throat> why uh, a diet that's higher in sugar, higher in carbs, is so detrimental for the brain. I mean, that was our contention with the original Grain Brain, a book five years ago, and we're all over that now. And, you know, mechanistically, uh, when you're <clears throat> having elevated blood sugar, you're doing a lot of things, one of which is to compromise the insulin receptor. We become resistant to the effects of insulin. We now know that insulin is far more important than simply helping your body deal with blood sugar. Uh, the insulin receptor has dramatic effects in terms of uh, its activity uh, in the brain, the effects of insulin within the brain to keep our brain cells healthy. So as we start to compromise the ability of our brain to be receptive to insulin by virtue of our elevated blood sugar, we see the powerful relationship that that has now uh, with developing dementia. So, you know, in the original book, we quoted a study from <clears throat> way back in 2013 in the New England Journal of Medicine that demonstrated a direct relationship between even subtle elevations of blood sugar and risk for developing dementia. Uh, that, that type of study has been replicated, appearing in the journal The Lancet just last year, showing that even an elevated A1C, uh, an average blood sugar, is dramatically associated with uh, shrinkage of the brain uh, and risk for cognitive decline. We now get the fact that having an elevated blood sugar increases inflammation. And as I'm sure your viewers well know, uh, inflammation is the cornerstone of about every chronic degenerative condition you don't want to get, whether it's coronary artery disease or cancer or Alzheimer's. These are inflammatory conditions. And one study that we have in the new book is from 2017 in the journal Neurology. And it's a study that's, I think, profound. It took a, a group of individuals uh, that were around their mid-50s, 1,600 of them and measured their markers in their blood of inflammation. Then it followed these individuals for an incredible 24 years. And what they found was there was a perfect linear relationship between those individuals who had higher levels of inflammation 24 years ago and risk for developing dementia. What, what again, were they using years ago. The, the measures of inflammation, uh, C-reactive well, in those days, they measured uh, fibrinogen, von Willebrand factor, uh, and a total white blood cell count. Uh, but we know that these are then surrogates for today's more uh, appropriate measurements, including things like interleukin-1 beta and tumor necro necrosis factor alpha. 
The point I'm making is that uh, this is a study that showed in midlife uh, in people in their 40s and 50s. And in fact, the relationship held a stronger uh, cohesiveness with those individuals who were lower in age at the time of the study. So meaning that they were more affected. Uh, the, the, the implication is that you know, people in their 40s and 50s who are overweight and have elevated blood sugar, both of which cause inflammation, are putting themselves at risk for an untreatable condition called Alzheimer's dementia 24 years later or later in their lives when they get to be my age, for example. And once that happens, you know, there's actually very little that can be done, at least from a pharmaceutical perspective. So the lifestyle choices that people make earlier in life are very, very relevant in terms of charting their brain's destiny as they get older. And I believe that you're speaking from personal experience. I thought I remember that your dad passed from Alzheimer's. It was a big factor. He did. Uh, and um, <laughs> I have to say that I'm still, uh, I, I still am paused uh, in interviews like this when, when that is mentioned. Uh, but I, I really want to just take yeah. a deep breath and use that uh, for a couple of reasons, uh, most of which uh, to let... Uh, Viewers know that I know what it's like. Believe me, I know what it's like. And, uh, you know, it makes, it, it just strengthens my resolve to do everything I possibly can to get this message out that this is not a genetic issue by and large. Uh, interesting, two studies came out this past year uh, indicating that you may carry some of the genetic markers for risk for Alzheimer's, but that aerobic exercise can offset those risks and decrease uh, for example, the amount of beta amyloid that might have accrued in your spinal fluid, for example, uh, if you do carry uh, those genetic risk uh, predispositions. Let me add one more interesting study that recently came out, published in December of 2017 in the journal Neurology. And th this will uh, take, uh, this takes some, uh, take your breath a little bit. The uh, American Academy of Neurology puts out practice guidelines for we neurologists. In other words, what we should do in a particular instance. And the question was raised, what should a neurologist do when he or she is dealing with a, a patient who has what is called mild cognitive impairment, MCI, which is really uh, the first step <clears throat> towards developing uh, Alzheimer's disease. And it went through a list of 14 different drugs uh, and all of the studies that indicated uh, how much research and the quality of that research about using a drug uh, to treat a patient who has MCI. They don't have Alzheimer's yet, but they're on their way. What drug should we use? And the conclusion from the American Academy of Neurology in their practice guidelines was the only thing that we should recommend to patients is a drug called physical exercise. They concluded that, and it's breathtaking for me uh, for a number of reasons. A, we've been saying that for a long time. Uh, B, and I think this is profound, that a journal that is supported by advertising by pharmaceutical companies would have uh, the nerve uh, and the courage, rather, to publish that article that really showed uh, under the level of scientific scrutiny, the only thing that can help slow the brain from declining is telling your patient to exercise, not writing them a prescription for Aricept or, or Memantine or, 
other medications. So how bold and heroic was that publication? I'm, it's breathtaking and very positive. But I would disagree with that because I think there's a lot of other things, as you would agree, too, such as this, the ketogenic diet, which I want to go into in a bit. And then there's certainly uh, other strategies you can use to reduce inflammation. And you talked about the inflammation before. I just wanted to clarify that it's the chronic inflammation referring to because acute inflammation is actually healthy. That's the benefit we get from exercise. It produces acute inflammation. But if it turns into chronic, you've got problems. So with respect to ketosis, I'm wondering what your position is because it, you know you you detailed very careful uh, recommendations as to why it's good to keep your blood sugar low and and you could extend it and say well you can do that with keto and many people may conclude that it's wise to be doing ketogenic diet continuously and uh, I I personally believe that's a mistake and that you need to cycle back and forth. Uh, you want, certainly, you want to keep your insulin levels low, but if they go too low, you have a problem. So this, like everything in nature, there's cycles. So I'm wondering what, you, what position you've reached clinically and personally with respect to cycling in and out of ketosis. Well, let me first get to the, uh, that notion of not wanting our ketones, to, uh, rather our insulin levels to get too low. It's, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because you know, there is a tendency uh, amongst some of us to uh, say if some is good, more is better. Mm -hmm. And I, I am personally guilty of that with respect to myself, you know, oftentimes overdoing things. But with respect to insulin, actually, a study was recently published uh, looking at 1,200 uh, women followed for 34 years in Sweden and demonstrating when you stratify these women in terms of their insulin level that there was a sweet spot, no pun intended. Mm -hmm. that women at the high range of insulin uh, had an increased risk for dementia and women at the very, very low range of insulin as well had about a 2.68 uh, fold increased risk uh, of developing dementia. That is actually, I hadn't heard discussion about, um, you know, the important role of insulin in the brain. So you're right. Uh, it is, uh, you know, a U-shaped curve. There are ideal levels for everything, whether it's alcohol consumption, exercise, sleep, etc. cetera, uh, we know that too low a blood sugar isn't good for you. So uh, with respect to the ketogenic diet, I think most people who are doing it are in and out of ketosis. And I think that's reasonable. I think when you push yourself aggressively to get, to get into ketosis by aggressive uh, caloric restriction and or uh, sugar carb restriction, uh, that that is beneficial uh, in the short run uh, because of this stress that it imparts on your body. You get amplification of gene expression that's good for you. But I think by and large, most people are in fact cycling. And uh, I mean cycling between being deeply in ketosis and not. Uh, I think that there are uh, good aspects of the ketogenic diet in terms of, as I mentioned, the, the stress to your body of being in that state. But also we know that one of the ketones uh, that is produced by being on a ketogenic diet, namely beta-hydroxybutyrate, uh, has some really good effects in the body and in the brain that go well beyond the fact that it is a super fuel for brain cells. We recognize that beta-hydroxybutyrate directly improves insulin sensitivity, uh, that it changes gene expression for the better, as such helps to reduce inflammation, uh, helps to increase 
a process by which our body is able to rid itself of damaged cells that we call autophagy, uh, that it enhances uh, mitophagy, the process by which we get rid of defective mitochondria. Uh, so there are a lot of things that beta-hydroxybutyrate can do, and we talk about that in the new book. We didn't really have that data five years ago. And, and having said that, we know that we can increase the amount of beta-hydroxybutyrate in your body right now without necessarily calorie restricting or even cutting your carbs by simply giving you something like MCP oil. That paves the way for your liver to make beta-hydroxybutyrate. And as such, you know, you don't necessarily have to stress your body with calorie restriction or going uh, deep in terms of lowering your blood sugar. That said, great, you'll gain the benefits of the beta-hydroxybutyrate, which I think is a good thing. But I do think that a little stress for your body, whether it's calorie restriction, fasting, uh, lowering your blood sugar, diving into cold water, uh, hot water, uh, uh, dehydration, uh, these are low levels of stress that turn out to activate gene pathways that are really good for you. So you mentioned using MCT as an alternative to increase uh, ketones, specifically beta-hydroxybutyrate. And I'm wondering what your understanding of the literature is in personal experience, because I haven't seen MCT work very well in someone who's already not very near nutritional ketosis. In other words, they were close to 0.5 millimoles of ketones by blood. Um, so if you're already there, then it can then it could certainly work well. But if you're not, in my experience, it doesn't seem to work at all. And it works it, to some degree. I mean, uh, this explains um, why we're seeing uh, this proliferation of products now. I'm sure you've seen this uh, with preformed beta hydroxybutyrate. In other words, you don't uh, have to depend upon uh, being uh, in low levels uh, in terms of your blood sugar and going uh, through uh, liver. Uh, to create beta-hydroxybutyrate. So we're actually seeing preformed beta-hydroxybutyrate products uh, entering the market now. But uh, I think when a person is uh, in a situation where they're doing their best to lower their blood sugar, as such, they're going to improve uh, their insulin sensitivity. And what happens then is insulin levels will go down. That paves the way for achieving the ketosis that you just talked about. Because we know that uh, insulin, uh, higher levels of insulin uh, increase insulin resistance, and that not only has a role to play in elevating the blood sugar, but it tends to compromise our ability to liberate uh, fatty acids from our fat stores and utilize them to help get our bodies into ketosis. So, you know, it's, it's a point I think well taken that over time, when people are progressively lowering their blood sugars and insulin levels and therefore increasing their insulin sensitivity, that getting into ketosis will be facilitated and the actual production then of beta-hydroxybutyrate will happen more easily. And of course, adding in the MCT oil can then uh, make that happen even easier. The beauty of the MCT oil is in contrast to getting into ketosis by uh, cutting your carbs or calorie restriction, uh, that liberates these long chain fatty acids from our fat stores. Two things have to happen to those long chain fatty acids to make ketones out of them. First, uh, they have to form uh, what are called chylomicrons so that they can be absorbed from the blood and ultimately make their way to the liver. And second, uh, once they're in the liver, 
they have to be uh, activated by carnitine uh, to form um, coenzyme A, uh, which is then uh, allows the production of ketones. Um, MCT oil, on the other hand, being a medium chain, 8, 10, and 12 carbon long type of uh, uh, fat, doesn't go through those two processes, doesn't need chylomicrons, doesn't need uh, activation by carnitine. And it's a very a much more simplified way to allow your liver to go ahead and produce things like beta-hydroxybutyrate, which is what we're looking for. I mean, that, that's really, um, you know, a really important molecule in terms of metabolism. And as I mentioned, even uh, gene activation. Yeah, so there's, you mentioned you can take them exogenously, of course. There's two types, the ketone salts and then the ketone esters, which were primarily uh, researched by Dr. Veach, an NIH fellow. Uh, and the, the esters are far more effective, but they're very costly, about a dollar a gram or so, and the therapeutic dose is about 15 or 30 grams. So it's pretty pricey for, as supplements go. But the, the reason I mentioned that as a basis is I wanted to mention something you may not be aware of because you fly pretty frequently, probably more than I do, which is about once a month. In fact, you're just, you're just coming back from a, a trip to Phoenix and you live in Florida. So you were at Dr. Bland's for an event. And uh, so uh, one of the things that, you, that I've learned that you can do, this is from Dr. Veach's lab, is, is to actually increase your ketones in your blood. Now he recommends and advocates uh, his ketone esters, but you could certainly do that with nutritional ketosis. And one of the ways you do that is, you know, you have to be metabolically flexible initially, of course, but then you could not eat, simply not eating when you fly will radically raise your ketones. And the ketone elevation, as you mentioned earlier, is a very potent anti-inflammatory. It's an HDAC inhibitor and radically reduces inflammation, but it also supplies NADPH. NADPH is the battery of the cell supplying electrons so that you can recharge your glutathione and your uh, vitamin E and vitamin C. You can, and it also helps make more of the things like SOD and catalyze through FOXO3A activation. So it's a, such a powerful thing. And you get to avoid the, the really junky food that even if you're flying first class, <laughs> there's really not good food. The only way you can get good food on an airplane is to bring it with you. But it's a lot easier if you just don't eat. Well, you're right. Um, you know, typically I don't. I don't eat when I travel. And for, for those reasons, and also because uh, you know, the food is so bad, with all due respect, it is bad. I bring uh, some things along when I travel in my suitcase, so when I get up to a place, I can open up, crazy as it sounds, my can of sardines and, and hard-boiled eggs and uh, avocado and extra virgin olive oil, and off you go. But uh, I, I think that uh, not eating is a good thing. I mean, I generally don't eat till two or three in the afternoon most days, and oftentimes, uh, you know, I might not eat until dinner. Uh, I'm, as mentioned before, I have a tendency to overdo things, uh, but I don't think that's, that's overdoing it. Um, you know, as mentioned, my dad and his situation, so therefore I have a risk. Understanding that the risk for Alzheimer's is certainly far greater if your mother was the uh, parent who had that disease. And that certainly speaks to a, a mitochondrial DNA role in terms of, of that disease. But, you know, um, the other thing that I think is so exciting is we, dare I say, were a little bit out on a limb five years ago in Grain Brain as we made our, uh, our, our exploits into um, talking about the dangers of gluten and specifically gliadin as a component of gluten, uh, that this was an issue for the brain. And we talked about you know, the various research studies that were early that were talking about 
uh, issues related to gluten exposure and uh, brain problems, not just cognitively, uh, but headache and movement disorders, et cetera. So uh, that has also been an area of validation over the past five years with even uh, in 2017, the Journal of the American Medical Association publishing an extensive review demonstrating that, yeah, guess what? Non-celiac gluten sensitivity is a thing and it can manifest uh, as an extra intestinal event, meaning not involving the gut, and can manifest as a brain-related uh, type of a problem. So, uh, you know, that's one of those times when you scratch your head and you say, gee, who knew? But, but having said that and seen that, uh, it means we're coming along. And um, I, I'm uh, happy that, uh, you know, the world is becoming much more aware that this westernization of the global diet, uh, global nutritional patterns, is really taking its toll on us in terms of chronic degenerative conditions that the World Health Organization tells us are the number one cause of death on our planet. So food is, is fundamental. Our genes haven't changed, but our gene expression has certainly changed based upon food and other variables, other variables in terms of our lifestyle choices. Great. Now, the title of your book is A No-Grain Diet, uh, Revisited. Grain Brain. I'm sorry. Oh, wait, the Grain Brain. I, I got kind of confused with my book, which was 2004, 14 years ago, uh, No-Grain Diet. Yours is the Grain Brain. And I'm wondering if you could, and your focus is more on the grains with gluten, which is primarily barley, rye, oats, wheat, and spelt. So I wonder if you could comment on differentiating between the, non, the primary non-gluten grains, like which I guess would be white or rice and uh, corn. Corn. And how, aside from, I mean, I guess not folk, because we know it's, if it, anything that raises the insulin level is going to be problematic, but from the other perspective, do you have a, a significant concerns with the non-gluten grains? Well, you, you brought up a very good point. And I, let me not gloss over the, the, uh, the carbohydrate part of that story. Mm -hmm. um, so we have gluten-containing grains and we have the non-gluten-containing grains. And as it turns out, uh, even the non-gluten-containing grains are worrisome because of their carbohydrate load. Foods based upon corn, uh, whatever it may be, processed corn, tortillas, you name it, uh, are a dramatic insult to our ability to regulate our blood sugar and as such pose a threat to our brain, our immune system, risk for diabetes, and certainly weight gain. Uh, beyond that, uh, we have rice, which is also the, the uh, seed, uh, you know, it's a seed plant, a grain, a seed of grass, which defines it being a grain. Uh, does it mean you shouldn't eat rice? No. Could you have a serving of rice? Absolutely. It should be wild organic rice. You know, some concern about rice in general being higher in arsenic. I'm aware of that. Corn, by and large, is genetically modified. We need to avoid that. But if you have access to an organic rice or corn and can limit uh, the amount that you consume based upon being concerned about the carbohydrate uh, event, then you could have some on your plate. Uh, I, I would say that as we talked about five years ago, you know, this dramatic limitation of carbohydrates and, and certainly sugars, uh, really uh, what we've seen, um, I, I would say unexpectedly, but retrospectively I would say probably expectedly, the amount of weight loss that people have experienced going on in this program has been uh, breathtaking. You know, we created a portal on drperlmutter.com where people could 
write in their stories and just to hear, you know, the amount of uh, weight loss that people have experienced by finally considering the importance of limiting their carbs and eating more fat uh, and losing weight, which seemed to be uh, an incredible uh, paradox. Uh, but when we understand how science and insulin signaling work, makes total sense. Uh, that's been very rewarding. You know, when two thirds of Americans now, two thirds are obese or at least overweight, uh, people need to get the message that it's not going to happen by limiting your dietary fat and eating the carbs. Uh, despite the fact that they may be organic and gluten-free, it's the carbs and the sugar that are making people heavy. Uh, you know, beyond that, how incredible has it been in the past couple of years that we've seen several powerful articles published that describe the relationship between zero sugar artificial sweeteners and risk for weight gain and even type two diabetes by virtue of the changes that happen to the gut uh, bacteria that's imparted by consuming artificial sweeteners. Yes, indeed, we have more and more evidence being published now that uh, sort of validate my book, I think that was published in 2007, Sweet Deception, that was really focused on Splenda primarily, but included all the artificial sweeteners at that time. And I don't think there's been any new ones since the last 10 years. So I'm wondering, you know, you certainly discussed the value of limiting carbohydrates and, in, and replacing them with high quality fats and the weight loss that you, your patients report on your portal. And uh, I'm wondering if you can discuss the other variable, which, which you're personally applying, which is not only looking at the types of food and the macronutrient ratios, but also the timing of your food, the other variable that almost is universally overlooked. And I think maybe almost equally as important as choosing the quality of the food. That's a very good point. You know, it takes us to the area of what we call chronobiology, and that is uh, trying to really reconnect with the cycles of nature, uh, daily, uh, seasonally, yearly, uh, in terms of what we do to our bodies. And, you know, does this uh, segue into the paleo narrative? I believe that it does. You know, the whole uh, underpinning of paleo is to emulate what our uh, environments must have been like, including food, when in our paleolithic times where we were really communicating with our genome in terms of changing gene expression in a positive way. Hey, it allowed me to sit here and have this conversation with you today. That's, that's how we evolved. Now we are living a, a life that is very much contradictory to that, that raises these uh, <coughs> signaling pathways uh, for negativity and creating things like inflammation, excessive free radical production, and therefore DNA damage, et cetera. So the question that you raise is timing of food. And first, let me say that I think uh, as a general principle, it's a good idea for people to really value the term breakfast for what it means. It means break fast. And I think it's a big deal when you choose to break that wonderful fast that you've engaged overnight from your uh, dinner that should be earlier as opposed to later. Uh, that should be several hours before you go to sleep. Uh, we don't want to be uh, uh, eating just before we go to sleep because of the blood sugar and insulin issues and how that affects quality of sleep which is fundamental for health and underrated. Uh, so I think taking uh, that point, that time, and then counting the hours until you break that fast, which might be at noon or 2 p.m., I think is a reasonable thing to do. As individuals <clears throat> get more and more facile from a physiologic perspective with 
respect to mobilizing fatty acids and using them as fuel, then protracting uh, their breakfast to noon or two or one in the afternoon will be easier and easier. So I think there's a lot said about uh, doing that and also eating within an eight hour window. That's become actually very popular as well and to some degree may emulate what our ancestors did and that is that you only eat during a, an eight hour window during the day and uh, during the other uh, hours of the day, the, the balance of time, uh, the other 14 hours you, uh, or 12 hours rather, uh, 24 hours in a day, less eight, so that would be 16, sorry, 16, right. uh, that you're not eating uh, and uh, that that seems to have some really salubrious qualities about it as well. Um, I wanted to, if I may, just a thought came to mind that I think is very important because I, I would suspect that a lot of your viewers and listeners uh, are have tried or will try, plan to try getting on a ketogenic diet and I would just indicate that uh, there can be complications of that diet if it's not done correctly. And people will often abandon it because they don't feel well or they become constipated. And I think the notion of getting into ketosis is important done the right way. It doesn't mean abandoning all carbohydrates. One of the biggest issues that I see is that individuals jump on this no carb approach, eat more fat and protein, and they feel uh, crappy, they feel constipated. And the reason is because they've abandoned a very important carbohydrate called dietary fiber. And we don't wanna do that. We wanna make sure that this is a diet that's rich in dietary fiber, and that we are careful that we're getting adequate amounts of minerals, uh, like magnesium, making sure adequate potassium and sodium are in the diet as well. Because these are, the, I think, the two biggest areas where people get tripped up and don't feel well by not having, having adequate minerals and certainly uh, not having enough uh, dietary fiber that we need uh, for bulk in the stool, but also certainly to nurture our microbiome. So we still wanna emphasize the notion of a variety of colorful, different color vegetables that's, that are good for you. Now, some people think a ketogenic diet is basically Atkins redux where we're eating pork rinds uh, and eating and cheese and eggs all day. And that's not what this is about. You can be fully vegetarian and engage a ketogenic diet easily with uh, paying attention to certain other things, uh, not just fiber and minerals, but adequate resource for B12, vitamin D, uh, other B vitamins, just to make sure that you've covered the bases. So uh, fiber is certainly great, but like you mentioned earlier, it's certainly possible to overdo good things. So if you overdo fiber, the downside of that is that you are susceptible to SIBO or small intestinal bowel overgrowth, which can be problematic. Not it's not a serious disorder and easily treatable by dietary modifications and not even really any medications, but I wonder if you can address that. Well, there is a, certainly a, a lot of um, understanding or attention drawn to small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, uh, which derives its name from the findings that there are more bacteria in the small intestine than perhaps there should be. Uh, diagnosed by various means, uh, most commonly by looking at particular gases that the bacteria put out, and that can be measured in a simple breath test. Uh, it's a common problem, and as you well indicate, overdoing things like fiber can pave the way for that. Uh, even antibiotic uh, exposure, oddly enough, can increase the growth of bacteria by virtue of creating imbalance in the gut and therefore allowing certain species that would have been in check to therefore 
uh, overgrow. Uh, we certainly think that diets that are higher in carbohydrates, specifically sugar or simple carbohydrates, uh, are involved in that as well. And it's, it's becoming uh, fairly common. I mean, diagnosed uh, in people who experience severe bloating after they eat or moderate bloating. But interestingly, and not unexpectedly, we see uh, even some neurologic issues, uh, brain fog, for example, that is a consequence of SIBO. Uh, I think uh, overusage of even probiotics might be something uh, that might be related here. Though uh, the new practice guidelines seem to indicate that in addition to an antibiotic, that there is some positive uh, effects by uh, utilizing a probiotic at that time as well. So um, again, it gets back to the U-shaped curve of uh, finding that sweet spot in the middle of what's best for us, whether it relates to our dietary fiber consumption, the amount of sleep we get, or even our insulin levels. So uh, we're seeing that uh, actually become quite, uh, quite popular, quite common. So earlier you mentioned Dr. Dale Bredes, who's also a neurologist, and I've interviewed him in the past, and he has a belief about uh, APOE4, which is an increased risk factor for Alzheimer's, as you can expand on. And his belief is that it actually is a marker for not increased risk of Alzheimer's, but decreased risk if you do certain things, such as fasting on a regular basis, because apparently a quarter million years ago, the entire human population was double homozygous for ApoE4. So what do you think? Well, I think the literature uh, would, with all due respect, uh, indicate that uh, ApoE4 individuals are less benefited by uh, diets that increase ketones, and which is unfortunate. So uh, I think though that it is a situation of looking at that in isolation. So, um, but it does bring up a very important point. I'm so glad you raised it. And that is that for individuals, uh, which is 20% of the American population who are carriers of the APOE4 allele, in other words, the risk, Alzheimer's risk marker gene, as some people call it, um, that the, the risk can be offset. Uh, in uh, a recent study, there was an examination of the spinal fluid markers that are correlated to Alzheimer's disease, like a beta amyloid and phosphorylated tau protein as measured in the spinal fluid in individuals who carry the APOE4 allele and a couple of other cholesterol-related alleles that are associated with Alzheimer's risk. And what did they find? They found that the relationship holds true more so in non-exercises and dramatically less so in exercises, meaning that when people exercise, they are offsetting their genetic risk for this disease. That, that should be shouted from the mountaintops, and it's not. Uh, it's, it's really important because, you know, uh, people are getting back their 23 and knees these days and seeing that they might have the APOE4 allele and think it's time to cash in their chips. And this is the time not to do that. This is the time to become more active and uh, change your diet and engage in more physical activity, get better sleep, take, uh, you know, monitor your vitamin D levels, make sure your homocysteine level is lower and interpret your genetic uh, profile through one of these other secondary sites that will tell you uh, whether or not you have, for example, a methylation issue that might increase your homocysteine and put you at risk for Alzheimer's. So uh, I'm, uh, I'm thinking that uh, knowing your genetics is a good thing because it's actionable. And that seems contradictory to how you and I were trained. We were trained that 
your DNA lives in a glass case and whatever it says is going to be. Well, we now know that that is not true, that our genes do not necessarily determine our destiny, that we can actively change our gene expression by making lifestyle changes. And in fact, about 70% of the genes that code for health and longevity are under our control based upon what we choose to do with our lifestyle choices. So that said, I think it's good to know uh, your genetics. It's good to get a study uh, like 23andMe and have it interpreted. What I learned about myself doing that was that I uh, am homozygous for methylation defect, MTHFR 677P1, which means uh, basically that you know, standard kinds of B vitamins are not gonna be as effective for me, uh, that uh, I need to have methylated forms of B vitamins in order to uh, be able to do certain things to protect my DNA. Uh, I'm glad I learned that. I'm glad I had my gene studied, so I learned that. So now I've changed something in my life based upon that test. So I think there's great information in uh, those genetic studies. You know, mainstream physicians tend to not want people to know their genetics or know any of their lab studies and not be participants. I think those days are coming to a close. I think uh, consumers these days want to know everything they can uh, to biohack themselves and become active participants in determining their health future. Yeah, just a minor caution on the methyl B vitamins, specifically the folate, methylfolate. Great supplement, I take it regularly, but wasn't aware until recently that it's actually uh, activates mTOR. So if you're seeking to fast, and inhibit mTOR, which is a good thing. And I, get, I don't think you should be chronically inhibiting mTOR, but certainly cycling it. It would not be a good idea to take methylfolate or even methyl B12 on the days that you're seeking to inhibit mTOR through a partial fast or a full fast, because uh, you're sort of putting the brakes on and the accelerate at the same time. Let me add one other thing to this whole methylation idea, and that is adequate amounts of riboflavin. I think it's underplayed. Sure. And I think B2 turns out to be an important a constituent of this whole methylome, this whole process of methylation. So, but your point is certainly well taken. Were you aware that it, it, it activated mTOR? I didn't know until just earlier this year. Uh, yeah, uh, not just uh, you know the mTOR pathway, but the uh, PGC uh, pathway as well. A PPAR uh, alpha is also affected in that regard. Uh, so uh, there, um, a lot of things act at a lot of different places, and uh, yeah. uh, I, I think that. Uh, you know, you do your best to cultivate the broad strokes, uh, but I think by and large, let's go back to those, uh, which are cutting your carbs, eating more fat. But, you know, when you get to the place of wanting to know your genome and to understand methylation and what type of B vitamin to take, I think that's the time when you bring on board uh, a schooled a healthcare practitioner who understands this stuff and can walk you through it because it's complicated. And it's not something that is easy to do at home based upon your lab work. So uh, more and more, we're seeing doctors, integrative types of doctors, functional medicine trained doctors who understand not only why this is important, but how to deal with the data and then be in a great place to advise patients in terms of what they should be doing. So with respect to genomics, do you find value in integrating that evaluation with uh, something like an organic acids, urinary organic acids tests? Oh, without question. I mean, so you know your genomics, you know what you should be doing, what you should be doing, but then a study like uh, organic acids uh, done with urine 
it's helpful then to tell you what are these pathways, what are they doing, what is, what's happening to the um, metabolism of your neurotransmitters, uh, how does that all play out, is there uh, evidence in these uh, organic acid studies of uh, malabsorption, of problems with digestion, of in imbalances of various constituents that then may be further modified based upon your diet. So that's yet another part of the uh, uh, lab study that I think is really important. And also other downstream uh, manifestations of these various pathways, like homocysteine, for example, uh, which is certainly influenced importantly by the level of uh, methylation and uh, has a role to play in the production of micronuclei, for example, which I wasn't aware of until a couple of days ago. Uh, but more importantly, is a powerful risk factor for uh, vascular dementia and even Alzheimer's disease. So, you know, these are the downstream effects of these perhaps in inherited uh, issues that people should be aware of. And, you know, uh, if you are homozygous, meaning you carry both sets of a mutation, then you know your kids are at least going to pick up one of those, uh, and so you know whether they choose to do a 23andMe or other gene study or not, you can advise them. You know that you're certainly at risk for this. So it's I again I think uh, on the on balance it's very good information to have. Great. Any other insights you'd like to share with us regarding the update to your uh, epic book? Epic. <laughs> Uh, I appreciate that. Uh, I just would say that um, it's been a, a terrific ride. Uh, it has uh, it is really uh, inculcated into my mind the notion that there's still so much work, work to do. You know, when I think of the fact that a million people have uh, bought and hopefully read Grain Brain, that's not a lot of people on the global scale. So there's still, you know, so much to do. I had the opportunity uh, a few months ago to uh, deliver a uh, lecture at the World Bank and International Monetary Fund about the global impacts of Alzheimer's and other chronic degenerative conditions being based upon the westernization of the global diet and why we need to really pay attention to this. So I'm looking forward to two weeks from now to going uh, to visit the largest purveyor of food on planet Earth to give a, a lecture there and hope that you know, we can uh, really be influential in making some changes. So the, what I'm saying is uh, the job continues, the work continues. And I think that it's work that has to be done, you know, even if it's a small percentage uh, change in the destiny of global health, boy, it sure is worth it. Yes. Well, thanks for all you've been doing. And even though you sold a million copies, there's that's only one in 7,000 people on the planet. So there's a lot of room for improvement. So if you have an interest in this area, I'd strongly recommend you picking up a copy, especially if you haven't picked up the initial one. The revision is even far better. So uh, thank you for writing it, making it available, and helping to change the world. Great to chat with you again.